The only school that teaches you about money is the school of hard knocks. Until now. You need to learn this business, and this is the time to do it. Become an insider. So you have to know the rules before you get in the game. Welcome to the Money MBA Podcast. Oh, have I got your attention now? Where you'll learn how to be a master of money. There's so many ways to make money today. Let me show you in two seconds flat why the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Now here's your host, Jonathan Katsmita. Today's guest on the Money MBA Podcast is Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital. Brent is best known for his dollar milkshake theory, which we're going to talk all about, but obviously we're going to be covering different aspects of the U.S. dollar, U.S. dollar liquidity, and we go into gold, cryptocurrencies, politics, geopolitics, China, Hong Kong, and we really cover a whole lot. But the thing that's great about this interview and really great about hearing Brent speak is he's able to take some of these complex ideas and simplify them. And one of the ways he does that very well is through story. And he references a number of uh, very classic movie titles to get this dollar milkshake theory across to people. Uh, this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. You could tell things were very fluid. Uh, Brent's an easy guy to talk to. And for the most part, some of these more in-depth topics, we only uh, touched the surface level up, but I think we did in a very effective way. So there's a lot of value in this conversation. I believe you're going to get a lot out of it. So please welcome Brent Johnson to the Money MBA podcast. Brent Johnson, welcome to the Money MBA podcast. It's a pleasure. I say we jump right into it. We are already wasting some time chatting beforehand. So in the uh, consideration of your precious time, why don't we jump right into who you are and the real basics? Obviously, perhaps we'll uh, talk more about your history and how you got to where you are today, but just perhaps uh, light speed to where you are at this moment. Okay, great. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Brent Johnson. I am the CEO of uh, Santiago Capital, which is a uh, wealth management firm in San Francisco. Uh, I've been doing this for about 20 years now. You know, started uh, 20 years ago in New York City, moved to San Francisco shortly thereafter, and uh, just kind of been doing it ever since then. So I've, I've seen some interesting stuff in 20 years. What uh, prompted the migration to the West Coast? Was it kind of a tech movement or was it a weather? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it was a uh, well. It's a little bit of everything. Um, I was uh, working for an investment bank in San or in New York City, and had just gone through the the training program, and was in my first year of business out there. And I love New York. I didn't think I was ever going to leave. Um, but this uh, position opened up in San Francisco. It was kind of the height of the dot com boom, and so when it was offered to me, I kind of felt like if I didn't take it, I had always kind of wished that I had. And I thought long term, San Francisco was maybe a cool place to live. And so I made the move and got out here. And a couple months later, the market crashed, and you know, <laughs> the, the 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 dreams of dot com glory uh, went up in ashes. But you know, I kept with it and kind of built my business over the next uh, twenty years. And here I am. Do you feel like you're somewhat jaded towards the tech space from that experience? You have a bit more of a cynical viewpoint as to what the unicorns actually provide as far as value. Uh, you know, I th I think I'm more jaded because of what happened in 2008 and 2009 than the tech space per se. Um, you know, I think uh, to a certain extent, I I, I love the uh, entrepreneur entrepreneurial spirit in San Francisco. I mean, people are always starting businesses. Most of them fail, but I think that's okay. You know, 
I, it's a kind of a badge of honor here. You start something that doesn't work out and you go start another one and, you know, sooner or later they get one. So I, I don't necessarily didn't get jaded from the, um, from the dot com boom, but, you know, you do see these companies that start and they become worth these massive amounts of money, which I don't think the valuations are always justified, but I like, I like the hustle, I guess, if that's the right way to say it. You know, the badge of honor that you mentioned, as far as these companies going out and doing their thing and, and kind of wearing that startup moniker, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there a bit of a casualty there or is it really the VC guys who can afford to take it on the chin anyway? Um, I mean, are, are people being, in your opinion, what you're seeing going on financially hurt from that? No, you know, I think you don't really. I mean, I think you will. I think we'll have a, another bust here at some point and you'll see people move away and, you know, the unemployment will rise and that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, I don't necessarily think it's because the VCs are just throwing too much money at them. I mean, that that affects it, certainly. But, um, you know, I think a lot of the the young people, they just uh, that's what they want to do. They they you know, they, they have an idea. Um, you know, they've kind of grown up with technology. They understand it better than a lot of people they're selling the technology to. And they don't uh, have any fear of starting something and seeing if it works or not. And, and I think the whole area kind of fosters that. Now, maybe they foster it to too much of an extent, and that's why we do get the bubbles and then we get the crashes. Um, but like I said, I would, I guess I would almost prefer that you have that uh, entrepreneurial spirit to not having it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So you've been in San Francisco, California, how long now? Uh, 20 years ago. I moved here in August of 2000, or nine, I'm sorry, 19 years. I moved here in so, August of 2000. Gotcha. And so just now you're you're going for the Fleckenstein look. You got the hair growing out. <laughs> yeah, you know, quite yeah, a, quite I, a it's, it's funny. It's funny you bring this up because uh, my wife hates it. <laughs> I think I'm going to go get it cut in the next couple of days. But yeah, it's been a while since I cut it. I just keep rolling with it, man. It's <laughs> it's part of you know this this next uh, phase of your yeah. of your business. Well, you know. Fleckenstein's got a great head of hair. I don't even want to try to compete with him on that. (laughs) I'll I'll let him have it. Yeah, he does. He gets that trophy. So what was it about the 2008, 2009 thing that kind of left you cynical? And in what way did you? Yeah, you know, honestly, it was was a big turning point in my career and my life, to be quite honest, because my, my outlook on a lot of things changed. I, you know, to a certain extent, had a crisis of faith, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, I, I've said this in a in an interview before. Like one of my favorite movies is this movie called Spy Game, and it has a it's a movie that has Robert Redford and Brad Pitt in it. And Robert Redford is this uh, you know aged, weathered CIA uh, officer, and he recruits Brad Pitt as his protege. And he describes when he first meets Brad Pitt, he describes him as the Boy Scout. You know, he was like you know come from this small town and always did everything right, and kind of rose up in his profession. He got to a place. Uh, where he'd always wanted to be and he didn't like, didn't like the view. And Mm so I kind of felt that's what happened to me in 2008. You know, I grew up in a little town. I always wanted to live in the big city and I always wanted to work on wall street for, I didn't even know what wall street was, but I wanted to work on wall street and, you know, through some hard work and some luck, you know, I got there. Uh, I was doing really well, making good money. You know, I had a beautiful family. I just had a son. I had the job I'd always wanted and I hated the view. I hated what was going on on Wall Street, you know, a lot of the, and when I saw the, uh, I won't go into too much detail, but I had a disagreement with my boss, uh, whereas he viewed me as a salesman for the firm and I viewed myself as a fiduciary for my clients. 
and those, the, those two don't always meet on Wall Street. And so that that played into it. And when I saw the and then this is the, the, the thing I think the thing that hit me the most was w- w- 2008 kind of uh, took pulled the veil back and, and and exposed the hypocrisy of a lot of America to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm embarrassed to say it was money that made it happen rather than some social issues or some military issues or some other things. But when I saw, you know, the, the, the fraud go on in wall street and then the bailouts happen, which yeah. helped wall street at the expense of the main street, uh, you know, in the Midwest where I grew up, they weren't getting a bailout. Um, that kind of laid bare to me the way the system is set up and the way it works and the way it, it shouldn't work, but the way it does work. And I just, I didn't like it. And I decided I didn't want to be part of that system anymore. And so I left, I left uh, the big Wall Street firm I was working for. And I joined a buddy of mine who had his own independent wealth management firm, you know, was there for several years. And then I set up Santiago, um, you know, as my own independent wealth management firm. And, you know, that, that, but, but, but the events of 2008 and nine were certainly, you know, uh, critical in my, you know, <laughs> evolutionary thinking or the way I view the world and the way I view the, the, the system, so to speak. And, you know, quite honestly, the way that uh, you should invest as a result. Now, it seems like that, that narrative is starting to gain a lot of traction. I mean, it's, I think, a big part of the ideology behind cryptocurrencies. Yeah. I definitely feel like the democratization of that information is certainly behind what, you know, Raul wanted to do with Real Vision. Yeah. Um, do you do you feel like you have that's a similar viewpoint with a, a lot of people that are kind of um, best way I guess I could say it's, is renegades like kind of guys like you who were part of the the heart of it and now have kind of gone off and are kind of attacking attacking that that Wall Street monster from from the outside. Yeah, I think a little bit. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Right around when I started in business, a couple of years after that, the movement from from financial advisors working from big firms to setting up their own independent firms was just starting. It was in the very early stages, and I'd say it kind of really picked up. You know, call it two thousand seven, two thousand eight time period, maybe just before I left, um, and then it's it, it, it's grown even since then. So I think I I was kind of there at a time. When the when the industry was kind of moving that way anyway, and then the you know the geopolitical events that went alongside it perhaps encouraged that to a little bit. Um, but you know, I think it's funny. Even though a lot of people left Wall Street and set up a lot of the, their own firms, I feel like a lot of them still do the same thing they did at mm-hmm. those bigger firms. They just do it for themselves rather than um, doing it for the bigger firm. Um, I, I think I. I saw things a little differently than a lot of people. Um, I saw the, not just the opportunity to leave the big firm, but I saw the problem with the big firm. I mean, I think a lot of people left the big firm just because they wanted to make more money or be their own boss or whatever it was. Whereas, you know, I I had a real problem philosophically with not just uh, not wanting to work there, but just the way they did business. And um, so that, that was, that probably inspired me to leave more than just the idea of being an entrepreneur or whatever it was. Well, I want to get into what you're doing, what, how your fund is focused now, where you see yep. things going, because yep. that rotting culture, I guess, um, I want to get your opinion on later on as to where where that goes is as, as part of the end game that you kind of see yep. coming from this this next bit. So now in, in Santiago Capital, you have a you have multiple funds or objectives. You have just one primary theme that you're looking to execute yep. on right now. 
Yeah. So, so just to be, so for, for, as Santiago Capital goes, um, it's traditional wealth management. Uh, I've got, uh, you know, some clients, high net worth clients where I help them with their overall wealth management. That means helping them design a strategy, uh, figuring out where they're at, where they're trying to get to, what's the right uh, amount of risk they should take, what are the assets they should use to try to accomplish those risk, those goals that they're trying to achieve. Um, also kind of coordinating that out with their trust and estate plan. Maybe I, you know, I'll work with their CPA to make sure everything's coordinated. So it's really kind of an integrated overall wealth management plan. And, and we manage separately managed accounts for each of these uh, families and individuals, and we'll customize those accounts and those strategies to those individuals. Now, in addition to that, uh, we have a fund that we're managing and that fund has a very specific focus. Um, that fund is not customized to each individual. It's, it has a distinct uh, um, uh, theme that it's playing, and clients can allocate you know, different uh, portions of their portfolio to that fund. Um, essentially, what I think is going to happen over the next couple of years is that the dollar is going to get much stronger. And then I can go through the reasons why that is, but we think that the dollar getting stronger it has huge implications for the rest of the world. Long story short, the monetary system is just not designed for the dollar to get stronger. But because there's a flaw in that design, it's set it up in a way that we think that's the inevitable outcome, that the dollar does get stronger. And when the dollar gets stronger, we think it'll wreak havoc on the, on the global monetary system. And we think that will create a lot of uh, negative fact, uh, impacts for traditional assets. But it also creates an amazing opportunity to make money as these uh, you know, currencies play against each other. Uh, taking a step back, why do you think... The dollar is not designed to be strong. And, and does this kind of play against what everybody thinks as far as that most people I, I, I feel in the general public would look at the government running deficits as a negative? But yeah. is that kind of the design of, of the dollar as the reserve currency? So, so there's two parts of it. So from the design perspective of the monetary system, and I'm going to talk about the dollar, but it's really this, it's really a global thing. You know, the Bank of England runs their monetary system the same way. The European Central Bank runs theirs the same way. China, Japan, Australia. It, it's really, it, it, it's the model which the whole world is built on. And that is the model that money is loaned into existence. And so when money is loaned into existence, that means that there's debt as part of that, you know, money, when money comes into the system, debt increases. As part of that, that means there's an interest rate associated with that debt. That means that every year that debt needs to be funded by interest payments. So without going into too much detail, anytime you have a system that has to grow every year, even if it only grows 1% a year, you'll eventually hit a curve that goes exponential. And if you know anything about exponential curves, you know that they either go keep going straight up or they completely crash. They don't level off to a nice, you know, right. even plateau. And so what we have is we have an exponential system at the heart of our monetary system. Uh, that means that it has to grow. When it doesn't grow, it crashes. Um, and so that's the first part of it. This, the, and that's why we think that, you know, the fact that debt grows up and up and up and up eventually crashes, that's really bad for the monetary system itself. The part that we think makes the dollar end up getting stronger is the fact that we have a system where there's a one global reserve currency, which means it's the currency that is most people conduct trade in. And it's enforced by the U.S. as the superpower. Um, that's, there's, good, there's good parts of that. There's bad parts of that. 
many people look at it as a great benefit to the United States. It is. You know, we don't really have to worry about pricing our goods and services and other currencies. We don't have to manage that foreign currency risk the way some other countries do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is, is we have to run deficits in order to supply the rest of the world with enough currency to conduct trade. And there's a famous um, argument that comes back from the 60s or 70s. A guy named uh, Triffin, Robert Triffin, came up with this. And he said, this works great for a short period of time. But eventually, the needs of the domestic economy of the world reserve currency will come into conflict with the needs of the rest of the world's economy. And that is exactly what we have right now. Um, And Donald Trump has driven us right into the heart of it. Uh, He wants to, quote unquote, make America great again. He wants to bring back manufacturing to the United States. He wants the uh, United States to be an export country rather than an import country. Well, that goes in the exact opposite uh, design. That, that goes contrary to the design of the global reserve currency and takes us right into this Triffin's dilemma. You can't accomplish the things that Donald Trump wants to accomplish and still have the global reserve currency supplied in sufficient amounts to the rest of the world. And so we think what what has happened is that there's not another currency out there that can challenge the dollar right now. The rest of the world has borrowed an enormous amount of money in dollars, and we've borrowed an enormous amount as well. But what people forget is other countries have borrowed an enormous amount of dollars as well. So they can't leave the dollar until they pay that debt off. Um, And so we've gotten into a situation where Donald Trump's policies and even the Federal Reserve's policies are inhibiting the, the, the supply of dollars but the rest of the world still has that great demand for dollars. So you've got this supply-demand imbalance, and we think that uh, that eventually leads to the dollar going much higher. Now, the end game is that this will all end very badly. The dollar will end up being inflated away to zero, whether it's by a, uh, an agreement, a coordinated global agreement where they do this, or whether it's just the, the Federal Reserve printing enough to happen. Um, you know, we do think that the dollar eventually will lose the reserve currency status, but we think what causes it to lose <laughs> its reserve currency status is it getting stronger, leading to the chaos, and then everybody agrees this just isn't going to work anymore. Versus the majority argument, which is the dollar is worthless. Right. Nobody wants the dollar. Right. So one of the things you do really well is your storyteller. And yeah. I think this is, um, <laughs> I think Wall Street doesn't know how to do this very well. And so you have um, people have a hard time trying to understand the concepts that money managers and economists talk about because it's so technical yep. and it's the classic uh, idea in sales, which is facts, tell story, sell. Right. And you've done such a wonderful job of encompassing this concept or this theme into a, a storyline, which you refer to as the milkshake theory. That's right. That's you right. want to kind of bring what you sure. kind of just surface level yep. talked about into this narrative, and 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 please add the parts about some of your your movies that you reference. Yeah, sure. it, yep. It's such a powerful way to visualize um, a concept that I think once you get it is somewhat um, an easy one to grasp. Yeah, it's it's more just you push back against it, and I think when you bring these other storylines in, it's easier for people to be like, okay, I can really see where he's he's going with this. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, I, I've used this dollar milkshake theory to explain what I'm talking about. It, and I, I got the dollar milkshake theory from a movie called There Will Be Blood. 
And in, in, in the movie, There Will Be Blood, it was about this cutthroat oil guy uh, from Texas who moves to California in the early 1900s. And he, you know, he develops these oil wells and he becomes this really ruthless um, oil baron, for lack of a better word. And there's a famous scene in there where he's arguing with uh, somebody else who has oil on their land. And the guy says, I'm not going to sell to you. I'm going to develop the oil myself. And uh, this guy says, it doesn't matter. I stick my straw down into the ground under your fence and I drink up your oil. And he says, I drink your milkshake. Gotcha. Um, and so that, that, that's where that came from. But what I think has happened over the last several years is post-2008, 2009, you know, it wasn't just the U.S. financial crisis. It was a global financial crisis. And not just it wasn't just the Federal Reserve that went out and printed dollars, but the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, the PBOC, the Australia, everybody started these easy money policies and they printed all of this currency. Um, you know, they printed yen, they printed euros, they printed pounds, they printed dollars, they printed uh, yuan. And so you but, you know. A lot of times people will think, you know, you print dollars, the dollars just stay in the U.S. Or you print uh, yen, they just stay in Japan. But all of this capital can flow around the world. They're not, it's not locked within the borders of those countries. So I said they printed up all this currency. It was kind of like this currency soup or this milkshake of all this currency, right? So there's all this liquidity out there from the central banks injecting it into the market. Right. And that, you know that was relatively stable for a long time because all of the central banks were doing it. But in 2000, end of 2015 into 2016, the U S started tightening fiscal policy or, or monetary policy, whereas the rest of the world was still injecting it all. So my point was the rest of the world continued to mix the milkshake, but the U S rather than lowering interest rates and doing QE, they stuck a straw down into that milkshake, and when they started raising their interest rates and tightening monetary policy, that sucked capital out from this global milkshake up into the U.S. domestic market. And you know our rates are much higher than the rest of the world. Now, our rates have started to come down. Um, I think the, the U.S. rate's like 1.75% now, uh, but many places around the world is zero, negative. So on a relative basis, buying a U.S. Treasury that pays you one and a half, one point seven percent or whatever it is, still looks pretty good compared to you know you have to you get charged, you know, you know to to have your money somewhere else. Right. So it's that relative, and that's the thing is many people forget that currencies, fiat currencies, are a relative game. And I'll get to gold in a minute. I know a lot of people are going to say, yes, but you should just own gold because all these currencies are going to get inflated away. And that's a good point. I'll get to that at some point. But my, in the meantime, these fiat currencies are having this currency war. Um, and a lot of them are trying to devalue their currency. But the U.S. monetary policy, we believe, is going to make the U.S. dollar kind of blow up all these other currencies because they are going to get weaker because it's the dollar getting stronger. And so the, 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 the other movie that I've used to kind of explain this is that uh, there was a movie back in the 80s when I was a young kid, 12 or 13 years old, called The Highlander. And it was basically about these uh, immortals who had, you know, lived, in the, lived in the world, but they would have these epic sword battles. And when somebody got their head cut off, then the immortal would die. And the, the guy who cut off the head would get all the power 
and eventually, and eventually there could be only one. That was the tagline. There can be only one. And, you know, early on in the movie, you identify the good guy and the bad guy, and you know at the end they're going to have this epic battle. It's going to come down to these two. And that's kind of how I view the dollars and gold. You know, a lot of people know that gold is a superior currency to the dollar. It can't be debased. It can't be copied. You know, it can be cut up into many pieces, and it doesn't lose, lose its purity. It doesn't have any counterparty. There's all these reasons um, right. that you should own gold. And I think a lot of people mistakenly went right to the end of the movie where dollars and golds fight. And my point is, yeah, we're going to get to that battle, but leading up to that battle, we're going to have all the other battles. And that's right. where the that's where the dollar goes around and cuts the heads off of all these other fiat currencies. And, I, and I've said for a few years that we'll get into a point where both the dollar and the gold will rise together. And everybody says that can't happen. And I said, of course it can happen. It can happen versus everything else. Right. Maybe they can't both go up against each other at the same time, but they can go up against everything else uh, together. And, and ultimately, I think that the dollar will lose that battle and that gold will win. But before that happens, I think the dollar is just going to wreak havoc on the rest of the world. And so that's 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 where I get the you know the combination of the dollar milkshake theory and the the Highlander there there can be only one. Um, the third part that I use on it is that is that there's a movie called The Prestige. The movie The Prestige is this movie about these dueling magicians who are always trying to one up each other. And you know it is what what people forget is that these magic tricks they're they're very highly coordinated events. It's not some guy who really goes up there and makes a bird disappear, or cuts a woman in half, or you know pulls somebody out of a tank at the last second. It, it's very highly coordinated. Right. And you know for years these central bankers all worked together and very highly coordinated. The the problem is is when they stop coordinating, the magic tricks don't work anymore, and it leads to disaster. And that's, you know, when the U.S. went on this divergent monetary policy, it screwed up the overall magic trick that all the central banks were trying to create. Um, you know, a lot of central banks around the world or entities around the world borrowed in dollars over the last 10 years. They had had borrowings before, but in the last 10 years, it more than doubled. The, the entities outside the United States owe something like $13 trillion in dollars. More than half of that has been built up in the last 10 years. The interesting thing is, is because they started borrowing it 10 years ago, it's now starting to come due. Right. Um, the problem is, is a lot of these entities borrowed in dollars, assuming that the U.S. Fed was going to print so many dollars, it would go down in value and they would be easily able to pay it off. Well, that didn't happen. The dollar didn't go down in value. It's actually risen in value and it's in danger of going any higher based on the supply demand. Uh, dynamic we were talking about. So now, this magic trick that they thought they were going to pull off, it, it's time for the prestige. It's time for the final act where they pull the rabbit out of the hat. The problem is, is there's no rabbit to pull out because the dollar didn't get weaker. It got stronger, and they can't finish the trick. Right. In, fact, in fact, the trick's going to blow up in their face. Um, so when I hear all this talk about, you know, the rest of the world hates the dollar, the rest of the world's going to leave the dollar, they're going to de-dollarize and the dollar is going to lose all its value. Well, they can't leave until they pay off the debt. And then people will say, okay, well, they'll just default on the debt. Well, now we get back to what I was talking about at the beginning about how money is loaned into existence. The problem is if you default on debt, money disappears. It vaporizes. 
So if you get into a situation where countries or entities start defaulting on their dollar debt, that makes the supply of dollars evaporate even faster than the demand does. So even if demand falls, you get supply falling even faster and the price still rises. So regardless of, 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 of where you view the ultimate terminal value of fiat currencies, in the short to near term or over the next two or three years, we see the dollar getting much stronger versus all its peers. And we think that causes great chaos, but it also creates great opportunity. So I hope that wasn't too much of a rambling explanation of my theory, but that's kind of where it comes from. No, it's great. So do you consider yourself as like the Sean Connery figure in the, in the, in the Highlander? Well, he was the most stylish one. So yeah, I'll take him. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> so you've got Trump with a certain objective, maybe at a certain time during or near the financial crisis, the central banks as a whole, but especially the Federal Reserve had an objective. Yep. Do you think there's just, um, I, I, I think it's, Interesting in, in our space, in the, in the financial community, FinTwit especially, to just assume the, the Fed is ignorant. Do yeah. you believe that? Do you believe that Trump has no idea that his domestic policies are going to cause these fiscal yeah. issues? And do you think the financial or the Federal Reserve, in terms of reversing what they were doing, yeah. they're aware that it's, it's causing some of these issues and, and what could yeah. potentially come of that? So I actually believe that he does know. But even if I'm wrong, it doesn't matter because he doesn't care anyway. So, the, you know, the, his policies do not jive with the current global economic monetary system. They just don't. Now, if he knows it and is doing it anyway, it doesn't matter because he doesn't care, right? right. And so whether he knows or whether he doesn't, doesn't know, I don't think is really that important to the overall situation. Um, I do think that he knows ultimately that he can use the dollar as a weapon. Right. Um, you know, just last week you know, or over the last week, you've heard him say, I'll wreck Turkey's economy immediately. <laughs> if, if they get too out of line, I will destroy their economy. He, he can do that through sanctions and via the dollar, right? And I think he knows that. Um, now, the other, a lot of the times, the biggest, I guess, challenge I have to this theory is when people say, yes, Brent, but the Fed will just come in and they will print whatever dollars are needed. Maybe. Um, I do agree that as the dollar gets stronger, um, there will be attempts to bring it down. You've seen that just in the last month. Over the last month, you've seen, and I don't, I don't have time to get into the intricacies of the repo market, but you've seen in the last month problems with the U.S. repo market, which is basically short-term borrowing. And the, the, the rates spiked uh, in September. The reason it spiked is nobody wanted to lend. The reason nobody wanted to lend was because there's a high demand for dollars. If there was no demand for dollars, repo rates would not spike because nobody would want them. You know, an interest rate is basically the price of money. So if you, if you think about repo rates spiking, that's the price of the dollar spiking to get that dollar funding. Um, prices don't spike when nobody wants it. Now, as a result of that repo rate spiking, the Fed has come out and they've done this non-QE, QE. So in long story short, they've said they're going to provide $60 billion a month of short-term financing to the market. And that has, you have seen a combination, well, you've seen the dollar pull back over the last couple of weeks as a result of that. I think the other reason the dollar's pulled back over the last couple of weeks is we've had this US-China trade deal. 
Mm-hmm. They've always they've always said that there is a currency component of this U.S. China trade deal. Uh, so I think a lot of people have thought they're going to be successful in doing this trade deal. They're going to be successful in this currency accord part of the trade deal. And so the dollar's pulled back. My point to everybody is, yes, of course they're going to try. Of course they are going to try to keep this thing going. My point is that they are going to fail. And that's what a lot of times people will say, I'm going to bet against the Fed. I'm going to bet against the dollar. No, 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 no. You got it completely wrong. The Fed doesn't want the dollar spiking. The the Fed losing is the dollar spiking. The Fed being successful is the Fed managing it lower, right? Um, so um, I think ultimately the, the problem is just much bigger than the central banks realize it is. And I think that while there will be attempts to arrest the, the rise of the dollar, it will get away from them and it, and it will become um, very ugly. And it will create these great asymmetric opportunities, uh, which we're going to try to benefit from. So my best attempt at explaining repo in, in 30 seconds or less is banks and capitalized institutions have certain liquidity requirements. Yep. When they can't meet those liquidity requirements, they go to the market, they exchange collateral like a treasury yep. for cash for to meet those liquidity requirements. When there suddenly isn't a market out there to satisfy that, they go to the Fed for these overnight repos where they basically post collateral, they get the liquidity they need. Usually it's a day, maybe two days. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the total act of the Fed having to come in and do these huge batches of repo and now doing this not QE, QE, because they're saying it's for different reasons, which is really just a liquidity reason. What they're ultimately doing is uh, vetting your, your thesis. Right? They've yeah. come out and said that yes. this – this milkshake thing is happening. This is a liquidity issue. Right. So your right. point is, or at least the, the the devil's advocate you're willing to play right now is they're acknowledging it. Are they able to actually wrestle it and, and control it? Right. And in the short term, it appears that they are. Um, and, and one of the things I want to make clear, because a lot of times people have heard me say, you know, that the, you know, the dollar is going to go higher and the U.S. is going to be the, you know, the, the rest of the world's going to fall and then the U.S. will fall last. But I want to be clear. I'm not saying that the U.S. is not going to fall. And I'm not saying that the U.S. isn't going to take punches along the way. They are going to take a lot of punches on the way and they will eventually fall. It's just that I think everybody else, for a variety of reasons, will fall first. Um, you know, and, you know, it's been suggested to me that the fact that this repo is happening is that the U.S. is falling first. No, the U.S. is not falling yet. We're still in the best economic shape from the rest of the world. It doesn't mean we didn't take a punch. Yeah, we took a punch. Uh, we may take more punches. Um, but the U.S. Uh, Fed is still, I think, in a better position than the rest of the central banks. I mean, think about uh, Europe. They, they never really stopped their easy money policies. Right. They, they, they've increased QE in the last couple of years. Japan has printed more money in the last 10 years than we did in the first 200 uh, or, you know, and same with China. So the fact that we're taking a few hits now doesn't surprise me. Um, I don't know the exact order that these dominoes are going to fall. You know, when I tell stories in order for a story to make sense, you have to kind of tell it in a linear fashion, but life isn't linear. And, you know, step three may become step four, step two, step five may come two steps after step seven. I don't know exactly but I just think that all of this stuff is going to happen over the next two or three years. Ultimately, it will get away from the central bankers. The dollar will spike and it will create chaos, um, which will ultimately, I think, lead to a global resolution on the dollar, some kind of a plaza accord. 
back in the 80s, the dollar had gotten too strong. And so they came up with this plaza accord, which was between Germany and Japan and the, many of the other industrialized nations to systematically weaken the dollar. And it worked. They were able to do that. They were able to take the dollar from its all-time high of, I think, 150 or 160 back down to around the 100 level over the next uh, several years. And so, you know, I think ultimately that's what's going to happen again. The dollar would get too strong. The, the the global monetary system won't be able to operate with a dollar that that's strong. Everybody, all the banks, countries will come together and they'll figure out a way to write down the dollar, whether it's devaluation or some kind of a staged process where this happens, or maybe they move to a new reserve currency. I, I don't know exactly, uh, but that's how I think it'll happen. You know, governments and central bankers typically don't react until there's a crisis. You know, you just use this repo thing as a perfect example. They didn't get ahead of the problem. When the problem showed up, then they reacted to it, right? Um, I think it's the same thing with the dollar. They're not, I don't think they're going to get ahead of it and create a new global reserve currency before the pain, before the crisis. But when the crisis comes, then they'll react to that. Even in, even in that environment or in that moment, do you think these countries have that political will to actually pull this off? Or is it something that actually comes as... as a result of, you know, the whole thing burning down. Well, I, I, I don't think there's the political capital or the political will to do it right now. Um, and I don't think the U.S. would agree to it right now either. Um, but I think if things get bad enough on a global basis that the whole monetary system is just breaking to a point where they cannot fix it anymore, they may realize we just need to reset this thing. Right. You know, when, when your car starts to break down, you take it into the mechanic. A lot of times they can fix it. They can put a new you know, carburetor in it or a new spark plug or a new flywheel, whatever it is. But at some point, you know, the whole thing breaks down. They just say, you know what, let's just junk the car and let's just go, go get a new one. Right. Um, I think it's kind of the same thing. They're going to try to fix it. They're going to put new belts and hoses and, you know, carburetors and stuff on the car. But eventually they're going to realize it's just not worth saving anymore and they're going to have to go get a new one. Oh, there you go again with another good story, yeah. another good metaphor. To, to <laughs> I don't know. That. I don't know enough about car engines to make a good story, but I can make it sound good. But it's probably yeah, technically the, not correct. Part two of the milkshake theory: the the car, yeah, theory. the carburetor, <laughs> the carburetor theory. <laughs> so that um, you know, going into that aspect of it, where you you fix it until you can't fix it anymore, and then maybe it's a reset. Yeah, whatever the. Um, the solution or the result is going back to your 2008-2009 cynicism. Is this just another painful wipeout for Main Street? Well, I do think Main Street is going to get hit again. Yeah, um, maybe not in the way that, that they have before. Um, maybe this one ends in very high inflation rather than great deflation. Um, maybe we have deflation and then the inflation. Um, you know, I think it's the thing that I think is very interesting right now is over the last couple of years, you've got a lot of different people with a lot of different... Some people think the dollar is going to get stronger. Some people think it's going to get weaker. Some thinks the stock market's going to continue to go higher. Some people think that's going to go down. And there's been evidence over the, call it the last 6, 12 months, there's enough evidence on everybody's own position to say to them, hey, you're right, hang on. This is going your way. You know, right. the people like me who've been saying the dollar is going to get stronger. Well, you know what? The dollar just hit a two-year high a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, you know, the, the Fed had to come in and, and do something to arrest that that dollar rise. So, you know, we're saying, yeah, we're still in the game. The people who have been saying the dollar is going to fall, 
they're still in the game too because they're saying, see, look, they came in. They're weakening the dollar. The dollar's starting to fall. So, so they feel like they're still in it. Um, the people, the, the, the stock market uh, bulls, I mean, the market's within 1% or 2% of its all-time high. So you know they feel like they are making progress. But the bears have said, yeah, but the Fed had to come in and help. They've had to lower interest rates. They've had to go back to easy money policy. My, my point is, is regardless of what your position is, you can kind of justify it right now based on what the, you've seen in the market over the last six to 12 months. So I think it's going to be really interesting how it plays out from here. Now, now I happen to think that we're going to have some inflationary pressures in the U.S. while we have great deflationary pressures outside the U.S. I mm-hmm. think we're going to have, well, I, I should change that a little bit. Predominantly deflation with some outside the U.S. with some aspects of inflation. So stagflation, basically. I think we're getting into a global stagflationary phase where the global growth is slowing but prices may start to pick up because of the amount of currency that's been issued and the supply aspect of commodities not being available which is not good if you get into a, a, a situation where some commodity prices are rising but growth is slowing it, you know it hits it hits the economy on both sides the input costs are rising but you can't sell it for more than you're buying it you know that's that's that, that's bad for the overall economy um, so I think we're I think we're now coming into this stage where um, I think it's going to lead to the dollar getting stronger, and I think it's going to benefit the U.S. to the to the detriment of the rest of the world over the next two or three years. We'll see if I'm right or not. So you have monetary policy kind of repeating itself, but now it's more as far as the stagflation point of view, it's more pushing on a string because the first time or the first couple of rounds of it, yep. the last let's call it the last decade where they. Yep been very involved, they've gotten both economic growth at the expense of asset inflation. Yeah. Potentially this time around, they just keep pushing commodity prices, asset prices higher without yep. really getting the engines of economic growth going again. I, I think I, I think that's right. But I, but I also think what's going to happen is I think that governments are going to do away with any austerity policy. And they're just going to, you know, if you think deficits are bad now, watch out what happens. I mean, I think the U.S. deficit could go to 2 or $3 trillion easily. Um, what is it now, like $1.5, $1.7 trillion or something like that? Uh, I think that could easily double. I think uh, even places that have historically been against fiscal expansion or fiscal policy, places like Germany, right. um, other countries in Europe, I think they're going to start to do it. Um, so I think that's kind of the next cat out of the bag. It's, I'm not sure. I wouldn't say that monetary policy is dead. Uh, but I think many governments around the world are starting to realize, and even the central banks are starting to realize that the governments are going to have to help lift the fiscal, lift the 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 inflationary pulse this time. Would would you say that's kind of the MMT movement? Yeah, exactly. That that's, that's certainly part of it. You know, that, I don't have time to get into all that, but that's another yeah. battle that's shaping up. Is is who who directs monetary policy? Is it the central banks or is it the governments? You know, now a lot of people think central banks are independent. I don't. I I think that's always been kind of a you know a cute little um, description. But uh, when 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 the rubber really hits the road, central banks aren't independent. They do what needs to be done to support that country. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the central banks want to cede power to the fiscal or to the to the Congress of those countries to 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 dominate monetary policy. So I think the next battle that's setting up is the who, who controls monetary policy. Is it the politicians or is it the central bankers? And, uh, you know, you can see that already a little bit with with Trump and Powell. 
Um, and you you can argue that the the amount of treasuries that the U.S. is issuing that's dominating interest rates and monetary policy more than the Fed action right now is as well. So I think uh, I, I just think it's a very fascinating time. Yeah, I I agree. So the going back to the milkshake theory, um, everybody's kind of doing the same thing, sloshing around in this same mess. If yep. we do see deficits expand in the U.S. from where they are now, let's just say double to keep the conversation yep. simple. I think part of your point is that you're going to see basically the same thing in these other markets. So the U.S. is still going to be called yep. the cleanest dirty shirt yep. or the place where people want to go. But if another country wants to kind of grow their their balance sheet or, or expand the deficits, don't they still kind of need to do that? In dollar terms, well, I guess that's yeah. I mean, so I think as I think what happens as as these other countries start to you know increase their deficits and push monetary or monetary stimulus into the economies, I don't think it'll stay in those economies. I think it will. Whoever receives that money, I think, is going to take it and invest it in the U.S. because on a relative basis, we look better. It doesn't mean we look good; just on a relative basis, we look better. And as the money leaves those economies and comes into ours, combined with our fiscal stimulus, I think that pushes U.S. asset prices higher. I think as though that money comes into the dollar, you know, first, before it comes into our economy, it has to go into the dollar. And as I think that as that pushes the dollar higher, it puts more pressure on those countries. So those countries have to do even more stimulus, which, which hurts their currencies even more. You know, so it becomes this vicious cycle. And I, I think we're going to end up with a situation where the dollar goes up a lot and the Dow goes up a lot. And I think I'm not sure if our bond prices will continue going up, but I don't think they're going to crash because I think enough money coming in will also find its way into treasuries. Um, now, maybe treasuries do continue, maybe pr- treasury prices continue to rise at all. That won't surprise me at all. Um, but I, I think eventually what will happen is the relationship between U.S. interest. So as the world reserve currency and as the biggest superpower in the world, the U.S. 10-year rate is supposed to be the risk-free rate. That's supposed to be the lowest yield that a sovereign can issue. And then everything else gets priced off of that rate. Well, everything's been flipped over the last 10 years, right? Now you've got the, 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 the biggest global sovereign with the highest yield that should reverse. And when that reverses, I think what happens is I think as other countries start to come under pressure and people decide they don't want to buy their bonds anymore because the only ones that's buying them is their central banks, the yields will start to rise on those foreign treasuries from a credit perspective, not because growth is picking up, not because of inflationary concerns, but from a counterparty concern issue. Um, the fact that G- that Greece issued negative yielding debt last week is just absolutely insane. Who wants to who wants to loan money to Greece and, and pay them for the opportunity to do so? Um, so we think eventually yields will reverse outside the U.S. and they will go to being higher than the U.S. on counterparty concerns, not because those are better places to invest, and that also leads to more capital coming to the U.S. So. Um, I don't know what the first catalyst will be. Part of me thinks it kicks off in Europe, uh, a crisis in the euro, and then it kind of heads east, China, Japan, Australia, eventually hitting the U.S. Um, 
But whether it starts in Japan first or China first or Europe first, it doesn't really matter. Once one of the dominoes starts to go, they're all going to go. So when you when you see some of this um, play itself out, some of the places you think that it'll start to show up will be the blue chip stocks, the, the yep. Dow Jones Industrial Average, yep. potentially bonds, but maybe more so you're, you're thinking in, in the stock market yep. and the bond market. Is that because it's more liquid or they just nobody trusts governments anymore? Well, I, I think both. I think both. Um, you know, listen, the U.S. is not in good shape. Again, I'm not saying that this happens because we've been great fiscal stewards of capital. <laughs> we haven't. We've been horrible. It's just that everybody else has been horrible as well, and money has to go somewhere. Um, but I think I think it will become clear. But I think we're going to have a sovereign crisis over the next couple of years. It's going to be a sovereign bond and sovereign currency crisis. People are going to lose faith in foreign currencies, and they will eventually lose faith in the dollar. But when as as let's just pretend that it goes Japan first. As people lose faith in the yen, that will push the dollar higher. As people lose faith in the yuan, that will push the dollar higher. As people lose faith in the euro, that'll push the dollar higher. As people lose faith in the dollar, that'll push gold higher. Do you see what I mean? But 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 fiat currency is a relative game. As as other currencies fall, that makes the dollar stronger. Now you might say it gets weaker versus gold. Fine, maybe that's possible. Um, I think eventually when we have this battle between dollars and gold, I think ultimately gold will win the battle. Uh, when the when the when the chaos initially starts and we've get let's say the euro goes down a lot and the dollar goes up a lot, I don't know if gold breaks out on that. It might. Um, I think everybody should own gold uh, because I think that will eventually happen. But it may be that as people have to sell things in order to get liquidity in dollars, they sell some of their gold. That won't surprise me either. Um, you know, if I had to pick just two assets to own over the next four or five years, I'd say dollars and gold. Those are, those are the two because dollars because you need them right now and gold because you need it eventually. So everyone kind of looks for signals, I think, in the price of gold, primarily in U.S. dollars, though. Um, where are you seeing other other signals related to this as far as yep. comparing, say, gold and other currencies or just yeah. other market indicators that are not dollar-based? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I've been saying for – so you know, I, I have been telling everybody for 10 years now that everybody should own gold, uh, and, and I am a huge long-term gold bull. In 2016 is when I started to really understand the problems with the monetary system from a dollar perspective. I always understood it from an absolute perspective, but I really started to understand it from a relative perspective as far as the dollar versus all the other currencies um, in 2016. And that's when I really kind of started to develop this thesis. Is that when they changed their policies? Is that... Yeah, the the, that, that was kind of what made me have to start kind of thinking about how that would affect things. And so, you know, w w when I kind of figured that out, you know, I started saying, hey, listen, everybody should still own gold. But that doesn't mean I, and I think you should, but that doesn't mean I think it's going to pay off right away. Right. And so I, I, I pretty consistently said that from 2016 to 2000 through 2018. And, and, and that was right. Now, and most other people in the gold world said gold's going to break out in 2016, gold's going to break out in 2017, gold's going to break out in, two, you know, everybody kept saying this is the year, this is the year, this is the year. And I, and I was kind of skeptical that this was the year. And I was skeptical in this year. And, you know, I was wrong. You know, gold broke out uh, earlier this year. Now, people are saying, well, Brent, you got it wrong. Are you changing your tune? Is gold breaking out higher now? And 
you know, I, I don't think so. I think we're going to go back to the breakout zone at least. I think we'll go back to at least 1400 on gold, 1375 area. And then we kind of have to wait and see now. If you don't own any gold now and we get back to that, then you should definitely, you know, start. What price start. level is that? Uh, that 1375 to 1400 level. I mean, if you don't own any gold, I think you should. And I think that would be a great area to start buying it. Now, just to be clear, just because I say I think you should own it doesn't mean I think it's going to pay off tomorrow. Right. Two, three, four, five years down the road, gold is going to be much, much higher than it is today. But that doesn't mean they can't go to 1200 or 1100 between now and then. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. It won't surprise me if that happens. So when you're basically making the point like, okay, gold had a nice little bounce here. This isn't really, this isn't the beginning of the bigger move. This is just, you know, kind of some signs of the stress in the system. For you, the dollar is really yeah. the kinlet. Yeah. Well, I, I would say as a, I'm speaking as a U.S. dollar investor, um, you know, again, going back to 2016, 2017, when I was talking about the dollar getting stronger, that's when I started saying in other currencies, it's time to go. Yeah. You know, if you're a euro investor, buy gold. If you're an Aussie dollar investor, buy gold. If you're a Canadian dollar investor, buy gold. If you're a Chinese yuan investor, buy gold. Argentina, because I think as, Argentina, Brazil, I mean, as those currencies go down, gold in those currencies is going to go up. And if you look. You look at gold versus a basket of currencies, it's near its all-time high in a number of other currencies. It's not gotten back up to there in dollars, but it hasn't needed to get up there in dollars yet because the dollar's still been strong. Now, eventually, I think it's going to go up in all currencies, including dollars. But, you know, I'm not – so So, why if, if, if you're looking to, you know, offset your European position because you're a European investor or Australian dollars or yen if you're in, you know, Japan – or can, uh, the Canadian dollar if you're in Canada, then yeah, buy gold. Uh, I think it's going to do really well. I just don't know if it's going to do really well in U.S. dollar terms yet. So is there anything uh, specific or in particular that you're doing right now or you see as a good way to visualize this milkshake idea and this dollar liquidity? Yeah, yeah so the one that we currently have in our fund, we currently have a number of put options against foreign currencies where you know, we have put options against the euro, against the, the, the Australian dollar, against the Canadian dollar, against the Brazilian real, uh, against the Hong Kong dollar. Um, but one of the biggest positions we have is, you know, we're not just playing the currencies, we're playing the knock-on effects. And as we think, as the dollar gets stronger, that creates deflationary um, contractual contracting forces on the rest of the world. And one of the places that we think is going to be impacted the most, which has not been impacted yet, is Canada. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest positions we have, or the biggest position we have right now, is a bet that Canadian interest rate, that the Bank of Canada will lower interest rates. They're the last major central bank to cut. They haven't cut yet. And they've actually been talking hawkish. Every other central bank in the world has started more back to an easing bias, including the U.S. So if you think that the world is going into a – if the U.S. is going into a recession and the world is going back into a recession, then there's no way that Canada is not going into a recession. And if you think that the Fed is going to have to do more rate cuts and do QE and do all this easy money policies, well, then there's no way that Canada is not going to do those same things. But it's not been priced into Canada yet. So we've been we've been buying long-term options, betting that, that the Bank of Canada will have to cut rates in order to fight a recession there. And we're going to continue adding into those positions. Um, it may not pay off right away. It may go against us in the short term. Uh, I actually hope it does go against us in the short term because I want to buy more of it. Um, right. those, are, those, are, those are the types of plays that we're doing. I mean, that one, um, I, I don't want to act like 
I have any any skin in the game on this one, but that one almost seems like too obvious, right? It's like how can yeah. Canada? I mean, you look at what Australia situation is very similar in terms of the housing market yeah. and how they benefit yeah. from China and yeah. Yeah. all the things that Trump is doing as far as um, his trade rhetoric. Yeah. It almost seems like an obvious one. Well, here's the here's the great thing about these trades is we don't think that somebody should allocate more than five percent to our fund of this doing this. You know, this is these are very asymmetric trades. It's almost a tail risk type hedge. And the nice thing about it, let's pretend that we're completely wrong. Let's say you allocate 5% and you keep 95% of you in your traditional investments and you give us 5%. Let's say we get it completely wrong and we go down 50%. You've just lost 2.5%. If we get it completely wrong and the rest of the world is growing and economies are breaking out, that means your 95% is doing really well. Right. And you're making more on your 95% than you're losing on our 5%. But if we're even a little bit right, your two and a half or your 5%, this is not a strategy that will return you 10 or 15%. If we're right, it's going to return multiples of our money. Now, there's risk involved. I'm not sitting here saying this is risk free. This is kind of the high risk, high reward strategy. We think that there's a lot less risk than the market thinks. And that's why we think things are priced in our favor. But if we're right, we think that our 5% can help offset any problems that come up in the 95% and actually have the opportunity to, to have a very asymmetric return to the upside. What is your thought on um, Hong Kong dollar? Oh, we think, yeah, we think it breaks. We think the peg breaks. And when, when the peg breaks, we don't think it's going to depreciate by 5%. It's going to depreciate by 15 20 30%. So we, we don't think that that is manageable. And that, regardless of the the dollar reserves that they say they have to defend the peg, it's so the interesting thing about China, uh, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, they have a lot of dollar based assets, but they don't have a lot of liquid dollars. So they've okay. been using their, you know, a lot of times they'll quote their foreign currency reserves of like, I don't know, three or four hundred billion. Well, the problem is, is most of that it's in U.S. dollar assets. It's not in liquid stuff where they can just sell it and use the cash to defend the peg. I think they have 40 or 50 billion available to defend the peg and they've been using that this year. Um, and so, you know, we think that's been drawn down quite a bit. Um, we think that they're going to have to make a decision very soon whether to sell more of their longer term reserves in order to free up cash to defend it or they let the peg go. Uh, ultimately, we don't think that they can defend the peg. So uh, we think the peg will break. So um, your position on that is more based on just their financial structure. You don't have a geopolitical opinion in terms of China. Well, it's, it, yeah, I mean, it, it's part of that as well. It's part of yeah. that. Um, a lot of people thought that China would defend Hong Kong. Well, I don't know if the Hong, Kong's, Hong Kongers want to be defended by China. You can see that in the streets every day now, right? Um, so there's a social unrest component of this as well. You, you've seen over the last couple of months, uh, Hong Kong housing prices have crashed because millionaires are getting their money out of Hong Kong. Um, as capital leaves an area, that's not usually beneficial to a currency peg, right? <laughs> so we, we think there's just too many uh, short-term problems for them to overcome. And so this this whole picture that you're painting, um, where do you see cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin come into yeah. play as a, as a similar yeah. solution? So I'm, I'm – and I – Listen, I'm not a, I'm not a crypto expert. Uh, I do think crypto's here to stay. I don't think it's going to completely disappear. I think the genie's out of the bottle as far as how powerful it is. 
Um, I'm to a certain extent, I'm one of these Bitcoin maximalists, if that's the right way to say it. Like, I think if cryptocurrencies are going to succeed, I don't think Bitcoin's going to zero, right? right. <clears throat> some of these other altcoins, I think some of them will survive. I think many of them will go to zero, but I can't see 10 other altcoins doing really, really well and Bitcoin going to zero. Right. I, I think, it, I think it has that first mover advantage. In many cases, these altcoins are derivatives of Bitcoin itself or off the Bitcoin network. Um, and I think that I think Bitcoin is big enough and powerful enough that it will remain. So I think if you are somebody who has some excess funds available, it's a great speculation. Um, you know, I can't say it's without risk. It's huge risk. Yeah. Um, and I and I'm listen. There's people out there that say the government can't shut it down. Well, I think that's being a little naive. It's true. You can't shut it down without shutting down the whole internet. But they can make it very unpleasant for the people that use it. So and, and I think as as it gets more powerful and as governments come under pressure, I think governments will put pressure on digital currencies. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to zero. I think Bitcoin could do very, very well over the next uh, you know, dozen years. Doesn't mean, yeah. it's gonna, it doesn't mean it's going to be a smooth ride, right? Right, and regulators are starting to have been doing that and they're continuing to do that and um, just making it complicated for anybody who's in that space, anybody who's even just you know playing with the asset as a speculation. Yep. Yep. So I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm, the more I dive into that rabbit hole, the, the more I'm intrigued by it. But yep. at the same time, I, I can see where kind of going, kind of wrapping this up. It, it's it's part of this end game story. They're yeah. not going to they're not going to give up power that they, yep. they the central banks, the, the global powers of the world, just because there's just a bit yeah. of a uh, financial bump in the road. So That's you've right. got the milkshake theory. A big part of it is this Highlander story. So what's the end game? What what happened? Whose head gets chopped off, and then what's the result? Well, I think kind of the, the whole world gets its head chopped off. It's just a matter of which order it goes. And eventually, the U.S. I think the rest of the world will then come together. I think, and I think the U. I think the rest of the world will ask the U.S. to devalue the currency. And I think the U.S. will agree when we and when everybody when it gets so bad that everybody's losing their heads, they'll come together and they'll figure out a way to write down the dollar. Um, and I think that is the point where, you know, you really you just go long all commodities and you go long gold. And um, at that point, the U.S. And probably, yeah, the, at that point, the U.S. probably goes into a, I don't know, a, a downward move and the rest of the world starts to ascend. Um, I don't know if that's in two years or five years. I really don't know. I think it can last longer than most people think possible, but it can also end very quickly. That, that's what I always tell people is you have to be prepared for this to happen very quickly. But I don't think it's going to happen very quickly. I acknowledge that these things can come unraveled very quickly, and you need to kind of have your insurance policies in place before it does. But just because I realize that can happen doesn't mean I think it's going to happen that way. I think it's going to take longer than most people think. I think it'll take another three or four years for this all to play out. But you know, we'll see. So is gold more the insurance policy versus the last man standing? Do you still yeah. see fiat having a you role? Know, it, like. Yeah, no. Here's the thing. governments are not going to give up on fiat currencies. They're not. They're too powerful. They're they're too advantageous for them. You know, they're not. The idea that we're going to go back to a gold standard and governments are just going to give up power and let individuals be their own sovereigns, I think is love it. I would love that to happen. Personally, personally, that's what I subscribe to. But yeah. do I think that governments are going to step back and allow that to flourish? No, I don't think that's going to happen. So. I think that gold will be part of the next system, or at least as a way to stabilize 
the mm-hmm. chaos before we go to the next system. But I don't think that we're going to go back to a gold standard where, you know, the people that own gold now are going to be flying private jets and everybody else are the poppers that we are working the fields. I, I don't think that's going to happen. And here's the, here's the interesting thing about gold. And a lot of people disagree with me on this is I don't even, I think gold is the last man standing, but gold really is. And a lot of people will say as a, you know, gold is your, um, is your, is for the chaos. But I don't think, I don't think gold is for the chaos. Chaos, you need, you know, food and shelter and, you know, friendships and stuff like that to get through, to get through the chaos. The gold is so when you come out of the chaos on the other side, you have money when nobody else does and you have capital to rebuild and buy up the pieces. So I almost feel like, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of things you can buy for the chaos, but you need to have gold, you know, so you can rebuild afterwards. Got it. So you're very generous with your time. I appreciate it. You do um, a fair amount of, of talking on this subject. I think because you tell it so well, you've got a great story behind it. Um, as part of getting out there and sharing this thesis, um, is part of your objective to have people contact you and potentially invest with you? Are you open to that type of um, outreach? Sure. I mean, I, I don't do this in order for that to happen, but if that if that's a byproduct of it, then that's great. Uh, I can. I, I'm fairly active on Twitter. Uh, my my Twitter handle is Santiago AU Fund. Uh, you can just, uh, I think you can just do a search for Santiago Capital and you'll find me as well. You can email me. It's brent at santiagocapital.com. Uh, you can find me through you. If somebody contacts you and you would afford them on my information or, or forward their information to me, that's fine. Happy to do that. I'm always happy to try to help people. Um, you know, if, if, the, if there's a fit between what I do and what you're looking for, that's great. But if there's not and there's a way I can help you, I'm happy to do that as well. Um, you know, I get a lot of messages. I get a lot of emails. I try to answer them all. If I don't, do it right away. Don't feel ashamed to email me again or, or message me again. I will get to you eventually. I apologize if I don't get to you as quickly as I'd like to. Awesome. So before we wrap up, we're in the middle of October. You yep. see any fireworks before the end of the year? Yeah, this- I, I, I think November is a very big month. Very wow. big. Yeah. All right. Well, that's. Right. We'll make sure we get this interview out right away so everyone <laughs> can have their, uh, All right. their eyes on. Thanks, Brad. I, I appreciate it, man. Uh, sounds good. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Money MBA podcast with your host, Jonathan Katsmita. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money mad pirates. To access more great content, visit us online at moneymba.com. That's where the money is. And more than that, control. There's only one person in the world to decide what I'm going to do, and that's me. And I am deadly serious about that. That's it, I'm done. <laughs>